to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mead. joined today by Chris Bugay. Hey, Chris. Hey, what's going on, Rachel? Not much. What do you got for me this week? Well, I got a little recap of what you and I did together. So at the beginning of this episode, we heard people lead in with the uh, uh, little, little, I don't know, community involvement, I guess is the best, best way to put it, is that you and I got uh, had an incredible opportunity to go to Montana and present together in person in Missoula, Montana, uh, to a wonderful group of people. And of course, we asked them to say, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? And that's what you heard at the beginning of this episode. So what are your, some takeaways or thoughts you had from Montana? First of all, I love Montana. It's the second time I've been there. Um, I had never been to Missoula and just we had such an amazingly warm welcome, Chris. I feel like such a well-organized event and the people were amazing. I feel like we had a really great day full of awesome conversations and lots of really great insights, um, really dynamic group. We had a, a virtual audience too, which we were able to chat with and talk to. Um, I feel like the the production value was super high. Like they had like all these different camera angles and we were mic'd up and it was just like, felt like I was giving a, a Ted talk. It was great. Uh, it, it, the, the, the layout of the room was sort of stadium style, like lecture hall, because it was at a university. And so you and I were sort of at the front of the room. And if anyone has seen us present before, um, they know that I like to run around the room and be the person with the mic and you stand sort of at the, the front and sort of direct the, the action. And that's a great way we team things up. But because uh, of the style of this room, what they actually had to accommodate that sort of experience is multiple people with microphones running around. And when someone would raise their hand, that someone else would run to the back of the room. And we had multiple people doing this. And then, like you said, we had a virtual experience going on. So like over my left shoulder throughout the entire presentation there was the zoom room and we had somebody being the, the the human moderator for the zoom room like answering questions and clarifying things and uh and it was just a really fun interactive dynamic experience the people in the room were engaged and asking questions and participating uh the people in the virtual space were engaged and participating and our hosts were amazing so if you ever get a chance to go to the montcom conference up in, well, I don't know if that it's always in Missoula. It was definitely in Missoula this time. Uh, definitely, definitely go. Definitely learn more about it. And we would always love to go back because we had such a great time. Yeah, we love Montana. That's the takeaway. We love Montana. I had never been to Montana before. Um, I had actually presented there virtually. I was supposed to go there in person and then mm, something happened March 2020. Oh yeah, the pandemic hit. And so that turned from a an in-person experience to a virtual one. Um, I had been to Idaho. Missoula is on the western side of Montana, which borders Idaho. And I've been to Idaho a couple of times. Uh, but so I've been familiar with that area geographically, but not actually in that state, in that city, which and then you and I got to pal around for a bit, um, uh, a little bit like before the, the presentation and a little bit after the presentation, we got to hang out and see a little bit of Missoula, go out to dinner, go along the river. It was it was fun to hang out with you. It's fun to hang out uh, in Missoula and explore a new city together. Chris, you forgot one really amazing thing that is a huge takeaway for me, the ice cream cones that we had. We had the most amazingly delicious ice cream cones. Um, we had a, a little coupon code from Montcom, and they gave us a, a free ice cream cone, and we definitely took advantage. 
<laughs> yeah. Luckily, where we were staying was uh, like in just a, a, a hop, skip, and a jump over to the Big Dipper ice cream. Not that we were sponsored by Big Dipper, but... Uh, but we would they, love to be. If Big Dipper is listening, please sponsor this podcast. <laughs> if you're ever in Missoula and you get a chance to go to the Big Dipper ice cream, please do that. That was a great experience. Super fun. All right. So with that, with that said, Rachel, I think there's some other stuff that we need to dig in here to today. And that is this might we might not be able to get to all of this today before we get into our interview. Um, But someone wrote me and asked a question. This person actually wrote me on LinkedIn um, and uh, and had some questions, which I wrote back. But I also said, you know what, I'm going to bring this up to Rachel on the podcast because it's good stuff to reflect on. And let's get into and talk about it. So this person writes, Hi, I'm Caleb, and I'm a speech-language therapist from Singapore, currently working in a school in Singapore, which serves students with moderate to severe autism. Uh, And this person is a big fan of the podcast and has said that they have learned so much listening to the banter segments and to the interviews that we've done over the years. Um, This person goes on to say, Uh, Manpower is always an issue and it's difficult to support and cover so many students with complex communication needs in the school. And that's why I loved the idea of the specific language system first approach where we can provide tier one AAC support to most students. Even though I've just joined this school, I've had the opportunity to implement your approach and we've been seeing and hearing of its benefits. Teachers report that many students, many of whom only use PECs in the past, have been able to transition with ease to a pointing system with the communication boards. Awesome and not surprising. So fantastic. Students have been understanding, learning, and using core words that are modeled. Excellent. Teachers prepare fun activities to teach the core word of the week. Again, awesome stuff, right, Rachel? Yeah, this is great. Goes on to say, uh, teachers' confidence in using the communication board has dramatically increased, and they've been using it more during the day, not just at snack time. Ha ha ha! Right? Which uh, that's so great because this person's recognizing that sometimes communication lives and dies around snack, right? And we whip out the AAC device during snack time invite students to make requests and then put that thing away right when i say this is where this is maybe 10 15 years ago that's a, that's a lot of how aac was implemented so i'd like to think that that has changed tremendously over the years he goes on to say i do have three questions and i wonder if i could get some clarity so here's question number one rachel regarding a communication prompting hierarchy if a student is new to the communication board or device and we jump right to the last step and model without expectation, how much time do we spend at that level? Is there a criteria or level to achieve before we can start progressively moving down the prompting hierarchy? Like starting with wait time and then going to some sort of natural verbal cue and then some sort of uh, visual cue or gesture, then a verbal prompt and then modeling on device. And that's how he characterizes it. Um, so that's the first question. So let's start there because there's more questions to, that he has, but let's just answer that, right? So what are your thoughts on the prompting hierarchy and the way he's characterizing here as sort of, um, he's sort of asking, do you need to wait to move on along the prompting hierarchy? I think this is a really great question and I think it comes up a lot there's a lot of confusion around modeling because we see it on a prompting hierarchy and we see it pretty far down and we're like, oh no, I thought I'm not supposed to be down there in the red zone. Um, And so let's clarify this. 
the prompting hierarchy, the least to most prompting hierarchy, when I say prompting hierarchy, that's what I mean. The least to most prompting hierarchy is something that you implement when you actually have already taught a word or a concept. So you wouldn't want to implement a least to most prompting hierarchy without having given aided language input. So I think part of the distinction is we always teach and model without expectation first, but when we feel like we've done a lot of teaching, so this you know person has a core word of the week that a lot of the teachers have been implementing. So that would look like modeling that core word of the week, you know, every day, all day, you know, really giving that language immersion, and then maybe towards the end of the week, trying to see if you could fade, um, you know, some of the prompting and the su- scaffolded support that you're giving a student to see if we can get uh, spontaneous or more independent communication around that word. So, you know, I think that there's modeling without expectation, which is what we know kids need in order to learn language. But if we're just constantly modeling and we're never giving kids space to actually formulate and communicate independently, then they'll just kind of wait for us to model and they'll be, you know, imitating our models, but they're not actually generalizing to I'm going to use this word completely on my own. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I think so. The other thing, the way this person wrote this made me think that they were thinking the prompting hierarchy was per kid or per learner as opposed to per word or, you know, I'm, I've, I, we're adopting the phrase now. I'm moving away from the we're using words and using core themes, right? So the idea that it's not just a word, but uh, a word plus the associated morpheme. So go is a word, but going is a word, but uh, went is a word and goes is a word. Let's not do word of the week. Let's do core theme of the week. So we get more hits in. Okay. But that's side nugget, right? I think the way this person was sort of writing this is thinking that a, the prompting hierarchy was related to a student. Like we would do um, modeling on the device or we would be giving a student verbal prompts for all the words we were doing. Um, we'd be at that level on the prompting hierarchy. And I, what I'm thinking is that it's not related to a individual student, it's in, related to an individual word, meaning an individual or again, corpheme. Um, it's so f- when you're going through the prompting hierarchy, you're actually doing that each time you're interacting with a student, right? So each time I'm, uh, I, I'm with a student, I'm, so they're sitting next to me and we're, we're playing with, uh, crayons, let's say, right? And there's crayons and we're, we're coloring. I might, uh, say something on my device, just like modeling next to the kid. I might say something. And then I'm just providing wait time. I'm not saying anything. And that's the first step on the hierarchy. And if they don't use their device or say anything or comment or uh, react in any way, then I might um, sort of be like gesture. Like you, people can't see me, but I'm just sort of like nodding towards the device or like pushing my hands in a way like in a, and making a little, like, little face like, hey, you might want to do this, you know looking at the device and pointing to the device. And then if that student in that moment doesn't do that, then I might um, uh, point to a particular word and, or say, I'll give a verbal prompt and be like, here, your turn, you do it, something like that, like along those lines. And I would be moving to through this this hierarchy in each instance for each each interaction with a with a kid so that a kid wouldn't necessarily be at a level of the prompting hierarchy there might be some words some things a kid might want to say and all they needed was the wait time and there's others where 
they have never heard that word before. They needed to see me use it a bunch of times before they would use it. So they, that we might expect they might need a different level of prompting because it's the first time they're ever experiencing this word, right? So it's, I think the prompting hierarchy varies based on the word or core theme. Again, I'll use those interchangeably for right now as to not to confuse people. Um, but not necessarily uh, a kid, well, I don't think a kid is going to be at a prompting hierarchy uh, just in general. Like it's going to be, it's going to be very per word. Does that sound fair? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely word specific. I also think it's very dependent on the level of motivation for whatever activity you're doing or whatever, you know, response you're hoping to get. Um, if you are doing an activity that kids aren't that excited about, you could pause and wait all day long and they're likely not going to do much. Um, versus if you find something super exciting that like they're bouncing out of their seat because they're so excited. Um, you know, especially if you've embedded a specific word into a familiar routine, um, and you've done a lot of repetitive practice modeling that word, um, you're more likely to see more independent communication, you're going to be higher up on that prompting hierarchy as far as giving less prompts um, and getting closer to independent communication. Um, he later goes on to say, because I wrote that back to him, so I'm, just, I'm skipping around our correspondence. Uh, he, did, he did go on to say, this clarification regarding least and most prompting is really appreciated. This makes a lot more sense to me now. Um, and uh, he says it's kind of a culture shock for many teachers or parents who are used to PECs or other sort of systems like that um, that relies heavily on physical or hand-over-the-hand prompts to to embrace this notion of inspire don't require right and that just you might just be modeling without expect without immediate expectation for a student to do anything um he says physical prompts are part of the protocol that that has been adopted in the past and we've observed how many students become incredibly reliant and dependent on physical prompts and aren't able to achieve independence and spontaneity in communication Exactly. I mean, we know that you know those kids. I know those kids. People listening to this podcast likely know those kids who are uh, 100 prompt, 100 percent prompt dependent. You know, they'll 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 have their their tool. They'll look at you. They'll hover their finger over a word and be like waiting for you to give them permission to say a word that has already been prescribed by somebody else rather than coming from within them themselves. He goes on to say, I recently had the opportunity to conduct an AAC training for 120 teachers in our school, and I introduced this phrase from one Rachel Nadel saying, inspire, don't require, to remind the teachers that communication is not compliance, but it's connection, connection over anything, right? Um, and he says, I go on to remind them that we can't force or demand communication, but instead show the students what they can say when they're ready or if they want to. And it's like, yes. Yes, yes, Caleb, yes. I love that. I love that Inspire Don't Require has made it to Singapore, Chris. <laughs> I'm like, this is so, so exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just like really hard sometimes to start shifting your mindset, especially because a lot of these teachers, that's what they've been taught to do for communication, you know, and um, it's like starting to think through a different lens can be sometimes challenging, but we know that we have to find things that are really exciting for kids to communicate about if we can expect them to to learn how to communicate and to do so independently and autonomously. Um, 
it's just like so many kids are so prompt dependent. Like when we actually, when we were in Montana, Chris, I remember specifically asking the question, raise your hand if you know an individual who's completely dependent on prompting from an adult in order to communicate. Like it was just like everyone like raised their hand and it's just like, this is the problem. So, you know, to kind of tie a bow in it, the, the least and most prompting hierarchy is a way to get students communicating more independently. We scaffold the support for them to get them inching closer and closer to independent communication. Well, he goes on. There's other questions, but I don't think we're going to have time for them today. I think we should maybe wrap this up because we have an interview to get to, and that interview is with part two of Sean Sweeney. Now, in part one, we talked a lot about Jeopardy, and part two, uh, what we're going to talk about is Sean has developed a framework over the years called Fives, which he uses to sort of consider uh, materials that he might use with individuals. Um, and he kind of runs things through this paces of the Fives protocol or the Fives framework to help determine whether this is a good material or not to use with, uh, with students. So without further ado, do, let's listen to part two of our interview with Sean Sweeney. Hi, everybody. This is Chris, the Vice President of Impact Voices. I have exciting news. Registration is open for Impact Voices Live Hangout in celebration. It is time to register for this exciting new conference. This is the only conference bringing the business and AAC community together to network. We are going to impact, empower, and connect everybody. Go to impactvoices.org backslash registration to register. For the best room rate, reserve your hotel room before September 9th. We are looking forward to seeing you there. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, strikes me about Jeopardy and Jeopardy questions in relation to AEC, uh, the way I'm making connection there is this... uh, how we often talk about motor planning, how we have to keep the buttons in the same spot, don't move them around, right? And some people will say, well, then why do you need pictures? Like if you learn where the words are, then you don't eventually need pictures. And we know there are certain AAC users that um, don't need the pictures anymore. Like in the same way that we have on our QWERTY keyboards typing uh, letters, but eventually those, they might wear off and you still know where they are, you know, Um, they don't necessarily need all the symbols. And uh, people say, then why have the symbols at all? And the way it was taught to me was the difference between your recognition network and your recall. And so when you're doing Jeopardy, you think you're drawing on recall a lot, like I'm kind of recalling information, but because of the way the words are, like you said, the clues are sometimes worded, it might, or you see something, you know, like if I saw the words um, uh, blackbird in the dead of night, like chances are, the Beatles are going to jump out and I'm going to want to say the Beatles, right? Because who else is going to put those words together, right? You recognize. So it's, there's a recognition there, not like an actual, truly uh, a recall that information. Is that fair? Or what do you, what do you think about that when it comes to like looking at Jeopardy questions? 
Yeah, I mean, well, you know, recognition too is often sometimes when you're presented with like, sometimes I'll see stuff on Jeopardy of like, if I was given choices, I would know, you know, which one, you know, that is. Um, but it's exactly like you said that, you know, sometimes the syntax gets in the way of, of even activating any of that. Um, people were generally more than generally awesome and kind and just reached out to me and was so supportive. But uh, there was one, uh, there was one clue that said something like this turning back time singer, and then went on to mention some song by Cher that I've never heard of. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it was a triple stumper. We all stood there and we were beep, beep, beep. And so I got so much crap after that because, <laughs> you know, being a gay who could not answer a question about share, uh, there was a certain element of shame. Um, but you know, it, yeah, uh, it, it can be tough, you know, how deep you've learned something, how, you know, uh, the, the surface of where a fact lies in your brain, I think really connects to it being a recognition versus recall thing too. I think about this that often with question. <laughs> I, I think about this often with the students that I work with. I have kids who have verbal speech, but it's really hard for them to retrieve. And you know, the moment you give them context or choices or you know something visual, it's like, oh, they've got it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so challenging when you don't have anything and you just have to pull from the resources of your brain, um, you know, depending how much exposure you have, depend on the processing that you have and other things kind of at play. And so I feel like there's kind of a parallel there too, is you had mentioned if there was multiple choice, I could totally have answered that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of a support strategy that we give to our students. And also one of the reasons AAC can be so beneficial when we're thinking about students who have extreme challenges with word, word retrieval, um, mm-hmm. automatically they have context to scan their potential options of things they could say or how they could formulate something. Um, and it just slows down the process a lot, um, which is one of the, the major benefits for students who might have verbal speech that's easy to understand, but they have significant formulating challenges and word retrieval challenges. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in terms of vocabulary, it's so fascinating that, you know, for, for Jeopardy, you basically have to have a vocabulary of everything that's in the world. You know, it's all fringe, uh, I guess. Right. Um, so, you know, people would need extensive, uh, you know, array of, <laughs> uh, boards to be able to uh, do that. Well, it's something we always say when we are presenting, when Rachel and I present, we talk about um, what does the word robust language system, what's a robust AAC system? And we say, well, okay, it's got thousands of words. It's got the morphological endings. It's got the ability to have quick fire phrases. And sorry, I was leading you up to Rachel. And it has a keyboard because we can't possibly program every single word there ever was or will be into an AAC system. So we need Mm -hmm. a keyboard. And then of course we need to teach kids literacy skills. Absolutely. That would, that would definitely widen the, uh, the field of people who could participate for sure. So that kind of leads me to the next thought I had about Jeopardy or like thinking, you know, how there's like, you said there's a professor's week coming up or whatever. It's, I don't know if it's a week. It, it used to be a week, right? I don't, is it that, is it like that? Or there's a period of time where it's professors, right? Or there's a period of time where it's like, I remember back in the day it was teen week, you know, and there mm-hmm. was teen, right? Um, so I was wondering about 
AEC users, right? Like you said, you you said it so eloquently about like being privileged to be there and that there's uh, certain people would not necessarily be able to participate in this experience uh, based on um, lots of factors. Well, one of the factors might be that you're an AEC user who would maybe know all of the answers, but not be able to buzz in as fast or... Um, get the answer out as fast, you know, and I've, it just got me thinking about, hmm, what would the accommodations be like if you wanted an AAC user to participate, make it more of an inclusive experience, you know, or if you had just AAC users week and it was all AAC users that were playing together, still, how would you have to change some of the dynamics in Jeopardy to, to like, okay, because it's going to take some time maybe to formulate and we just wait for them to formulate the answer, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, is, is it, I don't know. It just got me thinking about it. It's just a fun thing to think about. I, thought, I don't have answers. Oh, <laughs> they definitely have to adjust the timing. You know, like you need more than five seconds. You need more than 30 seconds to get your, you know, five, it's five seconds per any answer, you know, um, 30 seconds for your double, for your, sorry, your final Jeopardy. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of visual stuff that people don't know about, um, about Jeopardy 2 that, you know, when you are standing there at that podium, you are looking across the entire stage and that's how you're reading that clue. It does not appear down in front of you. That's why you don't, you never see contestants looking down, you know, and reading, they want them to be looking that way, you know? Um, And it's not that big, you know, I actually really went through a debate like glasses versus no glasses. I, um, I, I went and tried to get contacts and apparently I have tiny eyes and it was this torturous process left without contacts. I'm like, forget it. All right. So I, during rehearsal, I wore the glasses and then I didn't, but yeah, you have to be able to see. So for, for, I think, you know, a lot of contestants maybe could benefit from uh, something that's larger, you know, in terms of print and um, even the visual clues, maybe just more visual clues because they don't give you that many. And they are, um, again, across the stage on a not that big TV. Um, so mm-hmm. some of the times I was going uh, was due to this TV that was way across the stage. So I think around timing and and visual and, and you know, just being in a, in a cohort that you could compete with, of course, like you said, um, I think that that would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking about those visuals as well. And like, there's no alt text on those visuals, right? So there's no description of what the, no. what the images are when the, when a picture comes up. So yeah, there would be, that would certainly be something that would have to, uh, to be added. Uh, even if you just had someone who, um, was had a visual impairment, right? Not yep. using AEC, not taking AEC out of it. I mean, um, okay. there was a there was a fairly significant, significantly achieving champ some years ago. I recall who was blind, and I but I have no idea what kinds of accommodations they might have given him in terms of, you know, maybe an earpiece that was describing the picture, or um, you know, maybe maybe a monitor with enlarged text or or, or something. Um, so it, it might have been a behind the scenes thing. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. All right. Sh- sh- do you have any other questions, Rachel, about um, Jeopardy? Because I was about to shift the conversation to another topic, if that's OK. Yeah, let's go. All right. Here's here's one of the sort of the last thing I wanted to ask you, Sean, or we wanted to talk to you about. And that was um, you came up with a um, an acronym that you used when you talk about apps called fives. Can you tell us about that? 
Sure. Um, so some, you know, it was about a, maybe a year into when I was blogging, I started to think about how could I make what I'm doing here a little bit more portable for people, meaning that, you know, they're not just dependent on people saying, oh, use this thing or use this thing, you know, how to self-evaluate, you know, the world of, um, of, you know, available resources that are out there, which then exploded even more because of apps and people's interest in apps and having the, the portability and the reduced learning curve of the iPad. Um, and I've always been an acronym guy. I'm teaching my students acronyms all the time. And they're like, oh, another acronym, Sean. Um, and, you know, so I, I went in that direction. So um, fives is really criteria. Um, that we can use to look at any resource that maybe wasn't designed for therapeutic purposes and sort of tease it apart. How would we, let's say an administrator walked in the room and why were you using that thing? You know, be able to explain, um, uh, not to be anti-administrator, I'm sure you're very supportive as the administrator, Chris, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, how to be able to explain or justify some of the things that we are, are using. So uh, it stands for, um, uh, fairly priced. That's the F. Uh, originally it stood for free. And then I realized with apps that that wasn't sending the best message because there was a lot of great resources that cost a couple of bucks. Um, but you know, fairly priced, um, it, interactive. So, uh, students love interactivity and interactivity promotes like choice, causality, sequence, you know, decision-making of sometimes a narrative unfolds through interactivity, or you can create a narrative, you know, and stuff like highly interactive apps like book creator, you know, um, uh, V visual, cause all of our students, you know, could benefit from, uh, visual supports and technology often can make abstract concepts, more visual, um, E for educationally relevant, um, uh, you know, there's so many resources we can use that make the curriculum, all of the, you know, preceding criteria, make them more visual, make them more interactive and, um, you know, help students get, get engaged with curriculum topics in science and social studies, for example, uh, which has always been, you know, those have always been places I've loved to pull from. And then the S is uh, kind of more of the, like the um, activity analysis of thinking about this, this activity seems to involve some sequencing or there's some great vocabulary here. Um, the S standing for either speechy or specific. If you hate the word speechy, uh, some people do, uh, including me. So I don't know why I went in that direction, but um, you know, how specific is this? Um, I did some work with uh, some folks in Waldo County, um, uh, Maine, who developed a telepractice training center and Amy Reed, who works with them and often presents it. Asha talks about, a material having a clinical clarity, um, just, you know, some clear purpose of it. And the, the S is around, uh, the S is around that, um, is something students could work together on and therefore, you know, be practicing pragmatic skills or, um, is there some way that it records and that they could therefore do, you know, be practicing speech production. Um, so there's so much of that S when you kind of tease out, uh, what an activity was designed for and uh, what it might be useful for. I recently wrote about something, you know, I, I like to take examples that seem very out of left field um, and the new Jurassic world movie that's coming out at some point. Um, they put out a website that's this fictionalized um, 
uh, dino tracker because um, the concept of the movie is the dinosaurs are now among us. That's the new normal uh, is that there is dinosaurs everywhere. Right? And on the dino tracker, you can navigate through a map um, like a Google Earth map, a Google Earth like map and go to different locations and they'll show you like a video of the sighting of this dinosaur in Palo Alto or something like that. And um, it's just great for, you know, geographic awareness, um, you know, and a lot of our students could really benefit from having, um, you know, the continents reviewed in an engaging manner, the, you know, where the countries, uh, you know, cause that's kind of the way we sort out the stories about the world is if you know more about, uh, if you, you hear a story and you can kind of put, pin it on a map in your, your brain, um, that can be helpful. So, um, I don't know, Sean. I think I think it'd be much better if you just had a bunch of flashcards with dinosaurs and you tell me, tell me this, tell me this, name this, name this, name this one. Yeah, that no, something like that is so, like you said, so fun, so engaging, and like you said, what you're taking there is something that's uh, other people are just playing with in the world, but you're turning it into this is how we're going to use it for the educationally uh, relevant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also like a lot of language on the site. So it depends on what level you wanted to use it. What did, would you want to emphasize? You know, cause it had like do's and don'ts if you see a compi sore, you know, and so you could kind of translate that any way you want in terms of, you know, just working on reading comprehension, that's expository text. Um, so there's, you know, language is everywhere. So we can use that to our advantage for sure. Yeah, I think I'm it's, literally, is it jurassicworld.com? Uh, that- no, it's, it's, uh, it's on my, it's on speechpicky.com. I don't know the exact uh, location, but the link is there and it's called Dino Tracker. But I think awesome. if you looked up the Jurassic World Dino Tracker, you would find that. Um, so I'm always just I, examples like that. I have a kid who's obsessed with dinosaurs mm-hmm. and I will be using this today with him. <laughs> So That's thank you awesome. for giving me my therapy plan. For this I'm see you later. Well, we've been fans of the fives uh, framework. Is that what you call it? Like, I think it's a framework sure. to be thinking about um, any resource that you come across and sort of adopting that. And I can even see like taking it and kind of putting up a poster in your office or in your room so that your room, when you come across resources, you can run it through this sort of checklist to know you know, yes, this is, I could use this or no, not really, you know? And then, like you said, having some evidence to back up why you do need to, if you do need to justify a purchase or something to somebody, well, look, I ran it through this protocol and here's my little write-up of why I think I need this tool. Um, that, that that gives someone, it makes it visual for an administrator to say, oh, okay, so they didn't just want this. They didn't just get sold on it. They put some time and thought behind it and how they're going to use it. So um, I really love that as a protocol beyond just therapy. I mean, it could be used uh, in the ed tech world for, for, any, for, any, for any educator looking at any sort of parents looking at do I drop some money on this app or should Mm -hmm. I, you know, skip this one? Let me run it through the fives and see uh, how, how, how it's going to, how it plans out. Yeah. No, thank you. And it's been nice that it's been something that's been sticky with people because it was something I kind of put together a a bit impulsively. And, um, you know, I recently saw uh, Eric Raj, who does uh, Dr. Eric Raj now, who does a lot of uh, presenting. He showed me his slide and he's, he's, He's put he's putting it into a presentation and I'm like, wow, it, it lives. So that's great that it's um, still out there. People find uh, people find useful. Um, 
I'm often just doing that kind of sifting in my mind. I was on uh, Larry Ferlazzo's blog, which is about ESL and ELL learning. He recommended a, um, a Eurovision video generator. See, I'm a Eurovision person. I followed the, the Eurovision song contest, which is that crazy contest they have. And it was last weekend about all, all the countries put forth a, a video. And it's usually a very uh, elaborate uh, and or goofy song um, that ends up. So you can make different choices of who the band is going to be. And then they, you can pick what the topic of their song. And that included things like grandma. I don't know. And, and then you could, there could be so much you could do because it kind of leaves some blanks to what the song ended up with. So what are some, some of the song lyrics that you could come up with kids, you know, about, you know, what, what was your winning song? And um, there's just, there's so much out there with these little interact, you know, my, my trick is I'm often looking for interactive websites uh, and trying to use that term and search and find, uh, you know, interactive websites that will do those things. Um, I, I have a story to share kind of similar to that, Sean. I have a student who has gotten really interested in music. He's a teenager. Like most teenagers are very interested in music. Also an AAC user has some verbal speech, but He's able to type. And so he'll oftentimes say the just like in the middle of whatever we're doing, he'll blurt out like a song title. So like he likes the, the song Shallow by Lady Gaga. So he'll just be like Shallow. And everyone's like everyone but me is really confused because he hasn't given us any context. He hasn't attached like listen to. Um, and so anyway, I've been teaching him how to include the artist name. And so we've created this whole like Canva. I use uh, Canva a lot in my therapy because it's super easy to pull in images of Lady Gaga and like mm -hmm. all types of things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're like making sure that like if he knows the title of the song, he also knows the artist because that's like a context clue that makes people know, oh, he wants to listen to a song right now. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, we've been working on this. He likes Pitbull. He likes Lady Gaga. He likes James Blunt. Like it's a very eclectic mix of music. Um, but for the first time yesterday, he finally spontaneously said Shallow by Lady Gaga. And I That's was like, so yes. <laughs> so anyway, this is just an example of how like following a child's lead, their interests um, and really figuring out the breakdowns in communication. So he was very motivated to say shallow and fireball and all of his favorite songs. But <laughs> if we don't give the context as to an artist or use, you know, listen to, we don't know what he's saying. Most people yeah. don't know what he's saying. Um, so anyway, that reminded me of, of what you were just talking about as far as just like music and how we can incorporate those types of things in our into our therapy. Yeah. Music is so rich for motivation. Right. But my question to you, Rachel is now, can you sing the Lady Gaga high part? Definitely not. When he, no, just go. Anyone can. You just go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got I can probably sing it as, as well as you can sing share. So. <laughs> oh, too soon. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Uh, I have a student, I've learned a lot about Pokemon in the past year. I have a student who we do almost all Pokemon based therapy, you know, cause we're doing some vocabulary and sentence, you know, and, and grammatical development. And he comes into every session with a, a Pokemon card and it's like amazing, like how uh, complicated the language is, you know, um, in, in uh, Pokemon and, and the types kind of lead you to categorization and setting and, um, there's just so much you can do with that. And uh, um, we've been working through one comic 
you know, uh, Pokemon Adventures Volume One for weeks on end because the story is quite rich. Uh, it has episodes within it, and we've just been doing story grammar marker and um, you know picking out because oftentimes I'm kind of co-creating the meaning of this comic with him because some character has just flown in with a Pokemon that I don't recognize. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? You know? And he's like, Oh, that's, you know, I can't even remember, but Charizard um, or something. <laughs> yes. Charizard was involved. Um, but, and uh, you know, so um, that's great. And that's been one way I've used um, my public library card uh, with overdrive and, you know, I just remember to keep taking out that same comic every week and it, it resides in the Kindle, um, the Kindle application on my, uh, my Mac. Um, so that we're always working through, through that and finding new, new vocabulary um, to do for him. Even um, there has been some, you know, the theme of the Pokemon's endurance and he needs to develop endurance, you know, for um, different activities. Um, and so that's one of the things we're kind of incorporating with like zones of regulation and, um, you know, how can you use tools to evolve yourself, you know, from being cranky when you arrive to, because once he's in an activity, he's totally fine. It is an evolution process. Um, uh, but you know, that whole way that Pokemon evolve is helpful to him. Well, so Sean, I think uh, that's such a great activity. You've got, you've given us so much to think about here. Thanks for coming on the podcast and maybe you can come back sometime and, uh, and we'll chat about some other things in the future. What, what else you got as, as we wrap up, what's next for you? Your, any big adventures coming up? Um, for me, big adventures. Do you mean like in life or in work? I work either way. Uh, I think I'm just, I, I think just adjusting to where we are at right now is, my big adventure, you know, like kind of the veil of, of things, you know, what we've endured in the past couple of years, just sort of lifting and be, becoming and moving into, you know, more normal is I think where all educators are at, uh, you know, so uh, that's kind of my big adventure is just uh, finding the flow again um, of, of what, what we're doing. And that's uh, being mostly successful at that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a day-to-day process. Um, and you know, I've gotten much more in the flow of, of writing every week and, and continuing to share resources. So I look forward to, uh, keeping up that flow for sure. Well, fantastic. Check him, check him out over at speechtechie.com, right? That's still the blog, right? It's been in That's still the blog. Love it. Love it. I, love you know, I've subscribed and I get the, uh, I get the emails. I've been getting him for what? 11 years now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you for having me here. It was awesome uh, chatting with you both. All right. For Talking With Tech, I'm Chris. This is Sean and we got Rachel and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>